0: Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane, from the Rocketeer Minute and the Apollo 13 Minute.
1: And I'm Hal Bryan, also of the highly acclaimed and non-award-winning Rocketeer Minute.
2: And I'm Chris Henry from the Apollo 13 minute I just rode along with Jim. <laughs> right,
1: and uh, wow. once again, Jim O'Kane, common denominator.
2: You're, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I'm to blame for all of this. Yes. Uh, wow. Well, it's, it's great getting back. We're still we're still up in the nose of that B-17, <laughs> the, the biggest B-17 nose ever made.
1: <laughs> and you know that that it drives me crazy because I look at it and it all. I, I, we, I know we talked about this earlier but it all just everything looks right yeah and yeah. stuff i just can't figure out how it's so how there's so much room in there the yeah, only I thing it, i could think of is maybe
2: the... i mean so it's so it's clearly an e-model because um, it's got all the framework on the nose all the extra oh, right. framework the only thing i could think of is maybe it was a it it's basically an e-model going to the boneyard you know maybe all the equipment's just out of it like everything the navigator table. Everything is out of it, yeah, and, it could be and but, it's just bigger
1: you know it's it's funny though like when when we're looking over the shoulder the of the three guys you know leaning forward and looking at it, even that just even somehow the canopy or the the glass framework almost looks like it's it's too wide, but there's way yeah. too much detail, and they didn't just build something fake i I guess we have to acknowledge part of it is the fact that uh uh you know, people were smaller then. I mean, these yeah. are yeah, but it's probably I mean, these a couple guys, of 150-pound guys, and
0: yeah, these guys would have to have like 10-inch necks or something. It's just, <laughs> they're
2: really—I. So I've, the I've, I've, the okay. only thing I can think of is so it, it, and, I, and I'm going to jump minutes here and beg I beg your your forgiveness, but at the end of the movie when he uh, is in the G model, knows it's sitting out in the boneyard. That is a set. Um, when you see him step into it, the whole thing moves uh, from the inside, and it, maybe they built two sets, and they actually were so detailed that they did an E model or an F model and a G model. I mean, that's the only thing I could think I of. Know. But if if you watch it real close, when he first climbs in at that end boneyard scene, and he first takes his like first step like forward into the nose, like the whole thing rocks. Like it's definitely a set. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, maybe they i mean if so the set designers deserve a ton of credit well i'm i'm wondering i mean my 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 take on all this is
0: they had to film the background scenes first right because they're showing them rear projected uh through the you know through the nose right and and so they're over in ontario and they're cutting up they're cutting up b-17s by by the dozens and so uh weiler and his uh production designer say hey you know you're not going to use the nose on these guys right can we just have a couple of them and they're sure, sure that'll be 150 bucks and you know they drove off with three different noses and just built them as a wild uh, a wild set wall that you have the you have the nose and then you can make the I mean, the the one scene that we're seeing in this minute where you're looking over everybody's shoulder, you don't see the whole back, you know, you're not seeing the rest of the B-17. You're just seeing the nose there. So
1: Right. Yeah, that could well, be wild, as you say. And just, yeah. yeah. They're, just,
0: they're just laying down on a couple <laughs> of apple crates and looking out the window toward the uh, the
1: rear projection. You know what else is interesting to me about that, that shot of the nose over the shoulder, you know, not to obsess over it, but okay, that's it's what we're here to do is it almost if you could imagine taking the the nose framework of of this E model B17 and then kind of flattening it out like yeah stretching it and stuff like that cuz it just it part of it for me is that it looks so it looks so very wide and i'm almost sure that they would have taken the plexiglass out to shoot through it like this so against the rear projection but uh, I, maybe maybe you've seen a hint of that jim or not
0: what but. what if what if it's not like like there is no that window is all part of the rear projection and they're just leaning over the edge of a wall i mean if you look at where yeah. where it meets that's kind of the the seam there as you're seeing the wire around the the right hand side there that frame that goes around the window that might be part of the whole rear projection this was shot live you know they they flew they flew a B-17 over Cincinnati and just shot pictures with the uh, foreground
1: you know I could I could buy that except for the fact if you watch the the framework of the canopy um, if that were the case the framework of the the framework we're talking about would be bouncing and jittering yeah with the okay. footage in the rear projection and it's yeah. pretty locked stable uh on the same plane as the three guys no pun yeah. intended
0: okay yeah okay I, I i'd see that too but it's good um, theory though it's uh yeah fascinating just a just to wonder about how they got all this stuff. yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, not... yeah and i just yeah i'm I'm starting to think it, in certain aspects um you know on the right hand side you can see that it's that the, the framework sort of comes back and is pointed, but the rest of it just doesn't look, like the whole nose doesn't look pointy enough. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we're we're almost like we're, it's flattened a little bit and we're, you know, we're in really tight on it. But uh, um, I don't know, I, 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 I guess I wouldn't want to waste more than six or seven more hours talking about this one specific facet of this film. Uh, I, I am, imp- the, the, there's so many
0: little technical details on this that just are amazing. One of the ways that they're showing motion, much like in an elevator when you show, uh, or you're showing people in the back of a car and you're seeing the shadows moving across people's faces, that gentle turn that the that the B-17 is making, when we see the reverse shot of the three men, uh, you can watch the shadow creep across Frederick March's face, which shows, you know, they're, they're changing direction. And, it, oh, you know, yeah. it's so subtle, but it's just something your brain, you know, your brain interprets it, oh yeah, they're in the plane, they're moving around and they're, they're banking. Uh, it's uh, just a brilliant a brilliant thing. Uh any idea on the insignia that uh Frederick March has above his uh, sergeant chevrons? Let's see.
1: Did we did we talk about that last time?
0: I think we talked uh, about the ruptured, about duck, the ruptured yeah. duck. We talked about yeah. the ruptured duck that uh that uh, Homer's wearing. Huh. I don't know
1: Oh so you're talking about the uh that lightning bolt.
0: It's a lightning bolt, yeah. That yeah. looks like it's going through an arrowhead of some kind or Yeah. Uh, <coughs> don't know what that is I don't but, know uh, that one right off the top of my head i've tried to i mean i know that fred's in the eighth air force that's real obvious he has the right. big eight on his thing um
2: which uh, kind of did the eighth see any service in the pacific theater so very very i think very briefly and on paper mainly uh they switched to a b-29 outfit um after a uh, ve day and then they either deployed, but never actually flew a combat mission or there's some, there's some crazy story where they did redeploy. I want to say they flew like a single mission or something like that. If, if maybe, or maybe not, but they did redeploy as a B 29 outfit to the Pacific, but they, they didn't get to do much. The war pretty much wrapped up before they got really there.
0: I I was just trying to figure out how the three of them wound up there because, uh, uh, you know, uh, Fred is coming in from California and uh Homer and al are are both coming in from the west coast. They were all they were both in the pacific theater um although al is an army guy being over there i'm I'm not sure how what was the, what was the size of the army deployment in the Pacific Theater I thought it would be mostly Marines
2: oh well I mean no there were, there was certainly army over there
0: yeah i I just I didn't know like where where he would have been hmm. that it but he talks about you know he talks about being in uh in Europe, and then of course um Fred was in Europe in Paris because that's where he got all the uh, well the, the things that he's gonna be giving his wife when he gets home he he picked up some lovely things from Paris um I'm just trying to figure out how they all wound up on the west coast. It didn't seem like a a just a
2: deembarkation point for a b seventeen crew yeah well, I guess. And how you could you know correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, a lot of the B seventeen crews ended up coming home on a ship. Sure. Um, I know, I like the Queen Mary and stuff like that. So I mean, they would have probably ended up on the West Coast.
0: Would Would somebody well
2: on the wet on the West Coast? Or, or or I'm sorry, the East Coast. East Coast. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, been...
0: I, I, but I'm just trying to figure out: could he have possibly hmm. been uh, ferrying B 17s back from the ETO?
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I guess anything is possible when you think I, about I, it. I mean, it could have been one of those deals where he just tried to get back to the United States. Oh, and he like volunteered. Yeah, vol- oh, if you, you want know, me to <laughs> want me to do a transatlantic with that, and I'll oh, right, yeah, well, you got right. bring and it least, to California for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At least I'll be in the United States so that I can get the rest of the way. However, you know, that's a lot of guys did that yeah um you know, get me to the states, and then I'll figure out a way to get you know the rest of the way home to Ohio or wherever you're going.
0: yeah, yeah, he might have like had to do a route through Alaska or something and go down yeah. the coast <laughs> yeah, yeah just about up.
1: any any routing would be, would yeah. be yeah. possible and nothing too outlandish um yeah. now, uh while you two guys were stalling for me, i did find the uh, <laughs> I did find the the patch uh the uh, insignia um on uh Al's sleeve. So it's the twenty fifth infantry division so uh let's see born from twenty five september forty four activated uh, at Schofield barracks in hawaii
2: oh oh interesting
1: so so
0: he's been out in out at schofield for the for the remainder of the of the war yeah um Interesting. Okay. So that, yeah, that would explain his Pacific presence. And then, so, yeah, so that, that was, the, I just was trying to figure out where the plausibilities were coming from on, on all of these things. And, uh, Homer's probably in a rehab somewhere in San Diego. I would think there, there were big, uh, veterans rehab facilities sure. uh, in North Bay and all that.
1: And isn't so, that where, uh, where he was truly rehabbed or, uh, Harold Russell was uh, taken care I of?
0: I think so. I think he was, he was out West somewhere. It was either in LA or San Diego. Um, just, uh, it's just fascinating to watch all this is, uh, it, it, one of the things that I really enjoy about this is that a lot of this is news to them, but th- that, uh, the, uh, the surprising news that they're junking all the airplanes, um, that, they, you know, it never occurred, it never occurred to the other two non-flyers that, yeah, well, you don't really need them anymore. So, um, I guess uh Homer doesn't know about the mothball fleet that's about to happen. <laughs> right.
1: And how how surreal does that Jeez. does that have to feel? Uh and you know, when the the whole your whole experience, your whole life, twenty four seven has has been uh devoted to prosecuting this war and uh and how, you know, in maintaining these airplanes and employing these airplanes and And on the home front, producing these airplanes and just constantly pushing, pushing, pushing more and more and more uh, material. And then suddenly it sort of jolts to a stop. And now, you know, they're just uh, they're going to be chopped up by the thousands. Yeah.
2: You know, it was talking about uh, there's there's a line in here where he says some of them look brand new. And the the thought that always comes back to my head is uh, my friend Claire, who was in uh, TBM Avengers. Uh, navy patrol uh, or uh, torpedo bomber. Um, and he told me this story that they got back from the war. He wa he didn't go to the war. Uh, he got he he missed the war uh, by a, a couple months, but he was in post war navy. However, he said the squadron was home. They were in Norfolk. They had sort of weathered, beaten up TBM Avengers, and like a dozen brand new TBM show up at their base. And they're gleaming. I mean, they're brand new. He said you could still smell the paint on them. And he said all the pilots were kind of divvying up who was going to get which new airplane, you know, because clearly these were going to replace the war-weary uh, ones that they had. And Claire said, I'll never forget that, like, a couple days later, these guys from Grumman came, started them up, taxied them across the road with the wings folded, and scrapped them right across the street from the base and everybody was heartbroken because they were like why don't you scrap the the beat up ones and give us the new ones and it was all uh, about numbers and contracts and stuff and it was like we had delivered them but we didn't accept them and therefore you know they got cut up and he's like they were brand new like they probably the only time on them was the ferry flight from the factory to the base
0: Uh, and that was with that was the same thing with the
2: b50s for different uh different reasons yeah Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean there was there was yeah. it's 17s and and anything else were like that, you know, that uh, they were delivered brand new and and there was that's pretty common from World War II that brand new thing got delivered to the boneyard or scrapped and uh it's it's heartbreaking.
1: <laughs> and if you could just go back in time and right. explain, you know, what <laughs> this is. one would of those, one and, of those. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> and of course if they'd all been preserved they wouldn't have nearly the value they do today, but Sure. But life would still be better. Uh, if we yeah, had, I, I could handle a less valuable B seventeen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah, you've got Doc, but if you could have Sleepy, Dopey, Happy. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's a whole squadron. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, it's just an a, an amazing scene. I mean, we'll never. You know, hopefully, we'll never see that again. That giant. That 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 beautiful pictures. They're flying over there. We, let, let's talk a little bit about the history of Ontario and how that. How that wound up being the graveyard of you know uh, the, or the California graveyard of World War II and the immediate the immediate end.
1: Right. Um, the uh, you know when we hear about the aircraft boneyards, we always think of Davis Monthan Air Force Base in uh, Arizona. Right. Um, but that was uh, as you mentioned, Cal Aero it was a civilian flight school, if I remember right. Uh, it started before the war, and then they they got an Army Air Force contract, so you would have uh, you had a big training. Uh, training operation there throughout uh, throughout the war until uh, late 1944 I think.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Something like that.
1: Excuse me, I just took a slurp of water. Jim, you'll either edit this or you'll keep it in and it'll sound. <laughs> Leave it in and let day. everybody enjoy the organic. Political. Yes, very sorry about that. Um but uh anyway, they they were sending uh just about everything in the the Army Air Force's fleet, it looks like, uh, there. You know, in this minute, of course, we see lots of B-17s and B-24s. Um, and I'm sure if we, you know, scan it, you'd see lots of others. But I know historically you had C-46s and B-25s and Mustangs and C-47s and P-40s and P-38s and all that kind of stuff. And it uh, was um, just, you know, they, these airplanes that fly in and line up and, and wait their turn to become... You know, we always joked in my house it was always knives and forks even though i don't think we had a lot of aluminum silverware
0: but. <laughs> yeah yeah the coca-cola can you're drinking out of today may have, yes, some exactly. of that aluminum may have started as a v29 right yeah um,
1: an ignominious end
0: <laughs> yeah um the yeah, it's it's just astonishing the when you, you just look at the amount of real estate there and uh, ontario of course now <laughs> looks nothing like that uh, Today it's full of uh, you know, strip malls and highways, uh, but just just amazing seeing it out to the horizon. All those all those planes l- lined up, and you know, right. even even if you go to Davis, if you're if you're out anywhere in Arizona, any of the yeah, the Arizona boneyards, there's nothing like the scale that we're seeing in this picture. Um, although when I used to work for when I used to work for British Aerospace, U.S. Air bought a a bunch of British Aerospace one forty sixes. These are four-engine high-wing uh, jets. They were commuter jets, and uh, U.S. Air decided that they uh, they were uneconomical, but they couldn't break out of the contract with British Aerospace, so they stuck them all out in the desert. And anytime <laughs> they talked, every single time they talked about, um, you know, the airline business is failing. their airlines are having you know problems with traffic flow or or uh, you know, high prices. They would inevitably show a picture of all these British Aerospace 146s out on the desert oh, mothballed, and it's
2: like the worst, the worst kind of uh, publicity possible. Yes.
1: There is such a thing as bad publicity, Yeah, <laughs> clearly. That
2: makes a lot of sense being an ex-U.S. Aero employee. Yeah. that there's, <laughs> there's, oh.
1: yeah. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, had, I have a, a friend, in fact, uh, the wife uh, or ex-wife of somebody we used to work with, Chris Adam Smith.
2: Yeah, yeah. so
1: his uh, his ex wife Janet flew the 146s for quite a while, and she always had nothing oh. but nice things to say about him. She always really liked flying those. Oh
2: wow, I know,
0: yeah. I know that uh, EAA's headquarters has a beautiful model of uh, Air Wisconsin 146 in their stairwell. That's yeah. right. Yes, you know
1: <laughs> something. All three of us have seen. Yeah, two, yes. two of us more than others. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, every uh, morning for a while. Yeah. Yes, exactly, and we come. <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, you know this uh, this boneyard. In addition to uh, Uh, carving up airplanes and producing scrap metal had uh, had an interesting impact on what we now think of as the just the whole modern warbird community and the modern warbird movement and uh, I I was really thinking we had talked about this uh, earlier in our series but uh, um, there was a uh, high school senior in uh uh, it would have been nineteen forty-six, so somewhere pretty close to the time this movie was being shot and produced, maybe, maybe shortly thereafter. Um, named Ed Maloney, uh, who lived lived down in there, went to high school in uh, in Pomona, California, and uh, he went out to this uh, boneyard. He was he lived close by, and he would, he would go down there and he'd watch them storing the airplanes, and he'd have this. You know, watch them chopping them up and snapping a B seventeen or B twenty four in half, things like this. And uh, um, and then he, he also found a spot where they were uh, they would pile up old manuals. So the aircraft technical manuals. You know, we think of these three ring binders and stuff like that. And he described those piles of these things as being as big as a house, and they would just burn them. Jeez. And then one of the guys working there told told this uh, this young man Ed said, uh, you know, you can have all you can carry. And so he went back and forth and back and forth and started collecting the technical manuals. And then, um, then he started, uh, started actually buying airplanes and he scraped together some money, buy an airplane and then, you know, drag it out of there and try to find a place to store it and do these things back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, uh eventually once he got it to 10 airplanes, he formed, uh, the, uh, uh First incarnation of what we now know of as the Plains of Fame Air Museum, which is uh, right there in Chino, California, right where the this uh, uh, the former site of this this airbase. Um, and his efforts to to preserve some of these airplanes saved so many, and it got people thinking. Um, he formed his museum in '57, and that is. Wow. You know, that's a couple of decades before what we think of as sort of modern warbirds, as people really realizing, hey, P 51 Mustangs are collector's items and we ought to preserve these things. So he was, he was there in the late 50s starting this museum. And uh, the museum, of course, now run by Steve Hinton, who uh, Jim, you and I talked about at yep. length during uh, the Rocketeer Minute. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the just the finest uh, museums and warbird restoration facilities out there and certainly a um, more than just a a standalone collection this is one of those places that is a home for warbirds and you know it's a it's a knowledge base it's a place where where these things can be worked on where if you're doing a restoration in some other part of the world you might go and talk to them for parts and vice versa Um, just a a real pillar of that uh, of that community and it might not have existed if uh, if this high school senior hadn't gone out and said it's ah, it's terrible to see him chopping up all these airplanes we ought to start saving them.
0: Uh, just I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the idea that you know someone in say you uh, you know, you know some, somewhere in Europe they're they're putting one together and they need a trim wheel and that there's a whole community that oh I know where you can get a trim wheel for a C seventeen <laughs> here you go right got. and, and it, just getting in that little that 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 little uh, mail chain which you guys are in you, know, you say oh yeah <laughs> I, right. I know where I know somebody makes these things <laughs> and the, the idea nowadays that you could probably even print some of this stuff on a you know on a printer it's like I need. I need a new uh, frame for a window or something. You could measure it and you know bounce it off of a printer. That uh, you know it, it's it's just amazing how technology is keeping up with preserving the past more than even even looking forward to the future. Is that being able to to save this stuff from the past?
1: Right, well, um, and, and even before we really got into the 3D printing and the actual manufacturing side of it just the communications aspect that came along with the advent of the internet you know it it used to be imagine in 1957 while i'm restoring these airplanes you know what what do you do well you write you start writing letters you write a letter to the smithsonian and say you know do you have any information or any drawings on this airplane and then they say well you might send a letter to so-and-so and and you send a letter to that person who's in england or uruguay (laughs) or wherever else and And uh, then you get a little bit further along, maybe you're making phone calls and things, and now you just post something online and you can reach entire interested communities all around the world in seconds.
0: As, especially since I mean, back then, back say fifty seven, you could probably find guys who were X line mechanics that were in the you know in the Army Air Corps, and you could say, hey, how do you fix the <laughs> you know the, the hydraulics on this? And you can have them come in, but now they're all in their 90s, so it might not you might not have that knowledge. Yeah, that uh, that goes by. Um, My favorite they,
2: story about the uh, about Ed Maloney is uh, a story Steve Hinton told me that he can remember uh, hearing the story from. Uh, I guess it would be Ed's mother uh, telling the story about how she was giving Ed grief about getting some of this junk out of her backyard because it was killing the grass. <laughs> and the thing that was bothering her that he wanted, she wanted him to move was a Japanese zero <laughs> and it was literally in their backyard. And she said it was killing the grass to get it out of there and get, get it to somewhere. <laughs> and, and as far as I know that today that zero I think is the only one flying with the original engine. <laughs> like oh, wow. it's just unreal. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, it's only priceless. That's yeah, all. Exactly. yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I was wondering that. Speaking of priceless, if it, back then, if you know, as they're as they're getting rid of these things and they're they're junking them or getting rid of it, how much would a B seventeen cost used? That uh, provided that the you know the army aircraft would sell it to you.
2: Well, so interestingly enough, um, the city of Memphis had they wanted to buy the memphis bell when the airplane was still on the war bond tour when the airplane came back from its 25 missions um it uh it did a war bond tour it did go of course through memphis they tried to buy it at that point and they said no you know it's still a war machine and still has work to be done uh the airplane became a trainer and the city of memphis had put in a piece of paper that basically said uh you know when it becomes available. We want to buy it. Well, you know, the technology and communication being what it was then that was lost. Uh, the airplane ended up in a boneyard, similar to what you're seeing in Altus, Oklahoma. And the only reason it was saved is because the scrappers knew what it was because it still had the, you know, the pinup girl name on the nose Yeah. and they had it uh, towed over next to, uh, I think it was called like I, I think it said it was five grand, but it said V grand on the nose, of the B twenty four, and uh, they had like a little, their own little celebrity row where they the ones they liked, they kind of pulled over and saved, and they were going to scrap those last. And uh, a newspaper reporter happened to go down there and take a story, do a story about the scrapyard, and he saw the Memphis Bells. so he took a picture and he posted that hey, even the you know the once famous Memphis Bell isn't safe from the scrapyard; it's it's going uh, to be cut up as well. And the city of Memphis saw this, came back, said, Hey, we wanted to buy the airplane and the army air Corps sold it to them along with four replacement engines and fuel to get it from Memphis or I'm sorry, from Oklahoma to Memphis, uh, for $350. Wow. Yeah. I'll take two. <laughs> oh. Oh. Wow. And,
1: and Chris, you might know better than, than I do. And I don't think we touched on it in our book, but, uh, uh I have read in a couple of different places, not necessarily v- terribly well documented, but we should dig into it, that uh, um, our B-17, uh-huh. which is such a weird thing to say, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, at the Experimental Aircraft Association, where we both work, um, was, uh, when it was surplused, it was sold for $750. 750 bucks wow. So That's we had to, we'll have to dig into that and see for sure uh-huh. what uh, what that was.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. and
1: you wonder how, it, I, I don't have a strong sense of how that compared to the, Scrap value. It presumably was was more yeah. than the scrap value. Was, know, but the,
0: the scrap the scrap at the time was was something like uh, twenty five cents a ton. Oh, so it really, <laughs> it was nothing. It was like right. like recycling. You know, it's like aluminum cans. Um, well, yeah, and, it, it and like,
2: the famous thing, uh, the famous story it was very true um, that there were people buying certain style airplanes just for the fuel in the tanks, uh, so that they could use the fuel on the farms. Uh, oh, nice. yeah I mean uh, there are airplanes I remember reading a story I think it was like an Avro Anson uh, the people that rescued it rescued it from a farm and it was on a farm because uh, the farmer bought it for the fuel in the tanks uh, to use in his tractor wow yeah. amazing it's well we'll have more uh we'll have more salvage stories to come in our next
0: minute because we've got there, there's a we're gonna the next minute is mostly talking about junk so we'll, yeah. we can talk we can we can we'll bring this up uh on tomorrow's episode uh but in the meantime uh just want to let everybody know that you can uh, you can find the best minute podcast if you enjoy this we're on things like apple podcast spotify google play TuneIn, any, anywhere you get your podcast or wherever you found this This show, you can probably get there. Go in and uh, subscribe, and you can get us delivered, uh, as we say, hot and fresh every Monday through Friday. Uh, Or you can find us at the main site at uh, thebestminutes.com. On social media, you can, uh, if you want to talk back with us, always available over at uh, Butch's Place, the best years of our lives, listeners cafe on Facebook and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Uh, We will return uh, tomorrow. So join us here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon.
2: Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.